My son had a future and they've taken that away. And I just feel as if they were laughing at us. This was a landmark moment in the history of British policing and civil rights. The public inquiry into the failures of the Metropolitan Police to investigate the racist murder of Stephen Lawrence shook the establishment in 1999. If you are black or Asian in Britain today, you don't get as good a deal from the justice system, from public services, from private institutions, as white people do and as you deserve. That's the reality. We've got to change it. The McPherson report ruled that the Mets were guilty of institutional racism. Grenfell Inquiry, a lawyer for some of the bereaved and survivors, said race also played a part in their deaths. The majority of the Grenfell residents who died were people of colour. And we know, we know that. The statistics are glaring and provide a stark and continuous reminder that Grenfell is inextricably linked with race. It is the elephant in the room. Winter of Scandal almost embodies, in a way, for some people, how black people are seen and treated in the UK because it's this example where people who did all the right things suddenly had a huge amount of their rights and their access to things that they'd always taken to granted just taken away from them without any real explanation. Good evening, evening everyone. Can you all hear me? Yeah? <coughs> um, thank you for being here with us um, this evening. Um, my name is Dr. Lisa Amanda Palmer, Associate Professor and um, Interim Director of the Stephen Lawrence Research Centre. And I just want to give a warm welcome to you on behalf of the SLRC team. Um, for us, this is really um, the start of a programme that we've developed for the 30th anniversary. Um, this evening, you, I'll be hosting, um, along with my colleague, Fatima Rajana, who's one of our um, senior Legacy in Action Research Fellows. Um, so what I'm gonna do this evening is really um, <coughs> go through a bit of an introduction about the SLRC, um, a bit of 
about Stephen and his memory, and then we're going to go into um, introducing our fabulous guest that we have this evening. Um, so I'll start by saying that really, the centre, for, for those of you that don't know, the centre opened in 2019, and it opened with the intention of being a kind of unique physical space. So some of you may have already seen the exhibition. If not, please do um, arrange a time for us to kind of host you. You're more than welcome to come and see the space. Um, and so it's, we're also the home, the current home, of the Stephen Lawrence Archive. And so the archive was donated by Baroness Lawrence, who was the former chancellor <coughs> of the Montfort University. And um, part of opening the centre was to really build a centre that was about transformative change. It's really about thinking about having a, a, a space within higher education that is specifically looking at the politics and the inequalities around race and racism. Um, part of what we do at the SLRC is that we work closely in collaboration with a lot of community partners. So, so we, we work a lot with um, community partners in Leicester. Um, with local educators um, through our Teaching to Transform programme and our racial literacy programme. And also through um, looking, one of the key core things that we, we focused on is the, looking at the politics of community archiving. So we work closely with a, a, a community interest company called Carrie Cumbering. Um, and Tara Monroe, I think he's here today, along with uh, Marcia Brown, we work closely with them to, to kind of develop that archive within Leicester. Um, so this, we also have a kind of really strong track record of working internationally with uh, academics, um, artists, activists, um, all looking at the politics around race and race making and ongoing intersecting discriminations. Also thinking about the politics of liberation and the politics of love and black joy. So these are kind of a broad spectrum of the interest, research, and sort of the kind of commitments that we have as a centre. So what I wanted to do is really go into thinking about Stephen and Stephen's memory and Stephen's legacy. So we are all here this evening in memory of Stephen Lawrence to mark 30 years since his since his life was brutally cut short in a vicious racist attack in the streets, on the streets of Altham on the 22nd of April, 1993. Stephen's killing was part of a pattern of ruthless and equally brutal racist murders in the area, including Roland Adams in 1991 and Rohit Dugar in 1992. It's impossible to talk about race and racism in the 1990s without reference to the monumental impact of Stephen's murder. The Lawrence family's fight for justice and their, for, for their beloved son, and the publication of the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry Report, often referred to as the McPherson Report, all stand as landmark framings for how we understand race and racism in the 1990s. So some of us in this room I'm not trying to shade anybody, um, are old enough to remember what was, what was happening in their lives um, around the time that Stephen was brutally murdered. 
I was an undergraduate here at De Montfort University, um, studying a degree in an undergraduate degree in media studies and performing arts. And like Stephen, I grew up in a predominantly white working class area, but in a different part of the country in North Birmingham. Um, and within, like the area that Stephen grew up in, there was a very active and very um, powerful presence of the National Front and the BNP. And they were kind of politically mobilising and doing a lot of mobilising on the ground. We would go to school with children whose parents and relatives and loved ones were in those schools at the same time who were belonging and active in, as active members of the National Front. Like many of us um, at that time, we were very much into hip hop and so was Stephen. Stephen's, um, what we get from looking at Stephen's biography, which is very, you know, we know very little about his biography. Um, there's a small children's book that gives us a bit of an introduction to Stephen and his interest. There's also glimpses within um, his mother's biography itself that tell us a bit about who Stephen was and what he's, who he could have been if, he had, um, his, if his life wasn't brutally cut short in the way that it was. But like Stephen, many of us were into music, um, into the style of hip-hop, into popular culture. And in the 90s, hip-hop was one of the ways in which um, young people could utilise that, that form to articulate their resistance to racism and white supremacy. So knowing that as a teenager, knowing that as a teenager, Stephen went raving to the Public Enemy concert. Um, that one of his favourite songs was by an artist called Garnet Silk, um, called Hello Mama Africa. If any of you are familiar with reggae music, you'd, you'd know that song. Knowing that he um, he also attended a march in protest of Roland Adams allows us into a partial glimpse into who Stephen was. It gives us an indication into things he enjoyed doing, the issues that were on his mind, and the ways he was choosing to engage with the social, cultural, and political world around him as he was burgeoning, as he, as he was burgeoning into his young adult life. Over the past 30 years, it's easy to think that there is nothing more to be said about Stephen, his life and his family's campaign. However, this series of conversations taking place here at DMU, also at the University of Manchester and at the University of Greenwich, as well as our Hopeful Futures Challenge aimed at children and young people that we've just launched across the country, have been collectively curated by the SLRC team to remind us all of the power of Stephen's ongoing legacy. There is so much more that can be said and documented. And this is part of the process that we're engaging today. We want to be able to document much more about Stephen and about that period of the 1990s. For instance, what do we know about the cumulative psychological impact, psycho, psychosocial impact of Stephen's case and other instances of racist violence on black and brown and other racialized communities in the UK. 
why do so many different campaign did so many different campaigning groups galvanize and organize around the Lawrence family's case at the time? So Steve, if we think back to the what think back to the 90s, we know that there were a number of different political groups invested in campaigning about the violence that was happening in that space. Why did that happen? There was lots of, we might get an insight into that this evening. What do we know about the history and practice of political activism and mobilizing during the 90s in the wider landscape of anti-racist organizing in the UK? And how has the discourse on race and racism in the UK changed from then till now? Finally, what collectively is our call for action at this time when only a few days ago it was reported in the national press that a UN body has written to the UK government to express very extreme concerns about its failure to address structural, institutional and systemic racism against people of African descent in Britain. I don't hold out any hope for the government to come and change their approach to looking at the issues of race and racism. But I think the UN statement tells us really that this is an indictment on this country about where we are in, in terms of the politics of race. So these are the kind of things that we want to talk about today. I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Dr. Fatima Regina, and she's going to introduce um, our amazing speakers. And we just wanted to also give an apology um, because Dr. or Professor Gail Lewis is unable to make it this evening. So um, she sends her regards to everybody. Um, but we still have a fantastic lineup, and we're going to have a fantastic conversation. So I'll hand over to Fatima. Thank you. Hi, good evening, everyone. Um, so without further ado, we will start off with Professor Jason Arde. Uh, professor Jason is a professor of sociology of education at the University of Glasgow School of Education College of Social Sciences. <coughs> Previously, Professor Arde was Associate Professor in Sociology at Durham University in the Department of Sociology and the Deputy Executive Dean for People and Culture in the Faculty of Social Science and Health. He is a visiting professor at the Ohio State University in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and Honorary Professor at Durham University in the Department of Sociology. Jason holds other visiting professorships at Coventry University, London uh, Metropolitan University and Nelson Mandela University. He's a trustee of the Runnymede Trust the UK's leading race equality think tank and the British Sociological Association. Professor Jason sits on the Centre for Labour and Social Studies, National Advisory Panel and the NHS Race and, race and Health Observatory Academic Reference Group. Jason is also a fellow of the Royal Society of Science. <coughs> so without further ado, I'll hand it over to you, Jason. Thank you so much. Okay, um, good evening everyone, how are you all keeping? I am a modest starter to what is a sumptuous main and delicious dessert to come up, so um, I, hope I, uh, <laughs> um, I hope I can um, do okay, but before um, I, I say anything, um, more importantly, how are you all keeping? You all well? Good. Um, it is not lost on me that it's Thursday, 
it's probably been quite a tough start to the year and all of you have taken the time to be here. So I'm immensely grateful and really, really appreciate it. And looking forward to learning from some of your good selves as well and can see some friends in the crowd as well. Uh, great Nathaniel Coleman and as well and some really good people. So, and Rita as well. So looking forward to this. I um, just want to start by kind of paying tribute to a few people because um, I think these things are, are really important. Um, so Holly um, and Monica have been absolutely brilliant and um, they helped get me here in the first instance and have supported a lot of the kind of stuff that's happened behind the scenes with this. So just kind of want to say thank you. Um, I'm so, so grateful. I really appreciate it. And a lot of these things happen and I think, you know, people just arrive at a point, but they never actually acknowledge the people who, who get them there in the first place. So um, thank you so much. I'm, I'm massively grateful. Um, Gus, um, I, I have kind of a really funny story. The first time I, I saw you, I was six years old, and my mum had taken me to a, to a lecture that you'd done and said, you need to learn from this man. So, you know, some, some 31 years later to be kind of, um, I've been fortunate to share a few platforms with you, but um, to be in this, in this situation, in, in this moment, it, it's amazing. So just thank you for all the work you've done over what is pretty much over half, well over half a century. Um, hugely grateful to what you've done and I think there's generations and swathes of people who have been as well. Um, Gargi, um, I've known of your work for a very long time. Again, uh, my mum has got a lot of your work and a lot of your books at home um, and I was fortunate enough to, my mum saw Gargi speak over 20 years ago. So again, um, I didn't go to this particular lecture but I remember her coming home and talking about um, the amazing work you've done. So to be stood here with you and also I've been fortunate to work, do work with you with UCU stuff as well and activism but the work you've done and how you've moved this legacy on and really created a pathway for people from my generation um, to come after has been quite remarkable and I think there are a lot of women of colour that do all the heavy lifting and then you get people mainly men of colour, sometimes who take the champagne moments. So I think it's really apt to kind of say thank you for everything you've done. I'm immensely grateful and I know that goes far and beyond that. There are a lot of people that are really grateful for everything you've done, so thank you. Um, Fatima, thank you so much for um, hosting us as well today. I'm immensely grateful and, you know, it's just amazing that you've found an amazing home for all the brilliant work that you do. Thank you. No, not at all, not at all. And, um, and it's just a showcase really for how brilliant you are and I'm so glad that you know people could see it before but now the entire world can see it so I'm really 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 happy for you and last but not least um, this particular person is someone that I, I look up to immensely and they've had a huge impact on my own learning and just kind of understanding and I think one of the things that I love most about Lisa is her humility and grace with how she does everything but from her work from Lovers Rock and from her work around kind of blackness in Britain and conceptualising this and making this academic endeavour, what it has done is given us all the space to basically be like, do you know what, I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to see how I can infuse these two things. And I know that people will often point to, you know, I guess the Gilroys and the Stuart Halls of this world, but, you know, and I, I do celebrate the work they do, but... You know, there's, a, there's about four or five people that I, I look up to and, and I'd call them heroes. And then Lisa, Lisa's one of them. And I, I have the highest admiration and respect for all the work you've done because it's really given us a platform to be able to do things that actually, up until you were doing it, in my opinion, from our generation, no one was really doing it. So I just think you're brilliant. And the fact that you've brought this together, I'm, I'm so grateful. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. So, um...
tell you, right, I've got about three minutes left. That's what we're going to So, um, in terms of, I guess, the 90s, the 90s is a really interesting period of time. I guess there's a melancholia that exists around the 90s, which is really, really interesting. Um, and I say that because sometimes you can ask different sects of people, what did you think about the 90s? And I was really fortunate to write a book about Cool Britannia. So, and, and the kind of myth of the 90s. And what was really interesting interviewing a lot of people, they were kind of like, you know, the drugs was great, the sex was great, the music was brilliant, the culture was fantastic. Um, and you had this kind of paradoxical experience where when you spoke to black and ethnic minority people, the word that came up, or the turn of phrase that came up um, the most was, racism became state-sponsored and more sophisticated in the 90s, which made it really dangerous because rather than kind of it enacting itself in the previous decade out in the streets, what you actually had was this kind of situation where, in some respects, all of the kind of tenets of Eddie Grant's um, song had come to fruition, but they were kind of deeply crystallised within legislation. And, you know, people talk about a hostile environment being from 2012 onwards, but I think we can all concede the hostile environment never ceased. It always existed. It was just a continuation of what always happened. And I guess what's interesting is that for black and ethnic minority people, how they navigated the 90s was interesting. I use the word navigation because that's what it was. You were in this sticky terrain, which was thorny, and it was a navigation in terms of how do I navigate these landmines? And I guess, sadly, um, someone who innocently had gone to a concert <coughs> with their best friend on that night, why would they be thinking I have to navigate any particular kind of landmine? Um, and that's probably the most painful thing. And at, at that, you know, at that time I was eight, and I remember my mum sitting me down, and me and my three brothers, and she, she was watching the news at the time. Um, in fact, it was on LWT, so I, I remember that distinctly. And then they did a piece on the London programme, which used to be presented by our favourite person, Trevor Phillips. Um, so, uh, and which was, which was really, by the way, that's my poor attempt at sarcasm. But like, um, <laughs> but, but what was really interesting about that was kind of. That, that time, and my mum said to me, this is, she didn't use the word seminal. She, she said it's a very important part in our history, and you need to remember this, Jason. And, um, and, and, and then what kind of supersedes that is what happens in the 90s. So you have all these kind of seminal events in the 90s, and if you ask most people to kind of do a word association of what was the most important thing that happened in the 90s, or what was the, the, the memory that sticks in most people's mind, when I did this research, the word that came up the most was Diana's funeral in 97. When I asked black people, they said they named numerous murders, with Stephen Lawrence being at the top of the list, for one of not sounding crass, but it was literally top of the list. So even how we conceptualise those things, and the sense of national grief, grief is completely different. And you know, it's really funny because people often talk about the one time the Daily Mail was let off the hook in history was that they supported you know, the fact that these five, um, I guess, disgraceful human beings had somehow committed this murder and got away with it. And what's interesting is that kind of, that self-congratulatory applause of, you know, there was this widespread condemnation because the Daily Mail said it was bad. Actually, there wasn't a widespread condemnation. There was actually a justification made by our laws and legislations for why these individuals were not guilty and more importantly, there was a criminalisation and demonisation of the family and Stephen Lawrence in relation to, actually, it was your fault just for existing. 
And I think that's kind of really, really important when you think about it because then Home Secretary Jack Straw commissioned obviously the McPherson report and you kind of think, okay, but we talk about this whole period of institutional racism and it being kind of crystallized through that report, but actually, Amdavir Sindhavan kind of mentioned it in 1975, he'd already proclaimed or professed that institutional racism would be the problem of our time. And some, you know, 15 years later, that's the situation we found ourselves in. And I guess what's kind of really poignant about um, this particular period of time is this idea of an alternative existence. And the alternate existence is really interesting because it kind of proliferates itself through media, through television, through commentary through discourses and one of my biggest memories on TV like T I lived my life through TV as a kid and two of the biggest things that I remember I was made to watch one and one I just watched so Desmond's was something I was made to watch <laughs> and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was like a was like a like this utopia that existed that you just think no one else could ever aspire to and my mum made me watch um Desmond's because she said this is really important you are born and bred in Clapham and just down the road in Peckham there's a depiction of a family that breaks the normative construction of how black people transpire in British culture so you have two Guyanese people who are part of the Rush generation three children bank manager fashion designer and a university student and that's just not something you see and two business owners in South London now if we think about all the narratives that existed all of them bucked that particular trend. But it was such an important thing in a time where, where hostile Britain was doing everything it could to dismember and fracture political blackness and collective activism in terms of anti-racism. And all of these things kind of become really important as a point of departure in terms of where we are now. And I guess in terms of just wrapping up, I'm an idealist. So I always believe things will get better. And, and my belief is if you don't believe that, then we might as well just sort of give up now. As I said, there's a sumptuous main coming and a fantastic dessert coming, so they may say something a bit more apt. But I, I think the most important thing is, um, is time and space. And what I find really interesting about this time and space we're in is this idea of, um, you know, they say it, it's the hope that kills you. And sometimes you look at, you read the McPherson report and you, you see all of these things that happen and you find, it, you, find, you find something in you to keep moving forward. And then George Floyd happens and Tyree Stevens happens and then all of these things happen and you kind of think, where do you find the energy to keep on going? But the hope does kill you, but it gives you this sense of perspective. It gives you this sense of this idea that no two days are the same. And you have people that are taking up this charge. And I often think of my place in this world um, like this. So they say the greatest sporting franchise ever, statistically speaking, is the New Zealand All Blacks. And what they say about the All Blacks jersey is that the All Blacks jersey doesn't belong to you. Your job as an All Black is to leave the jersey in a better position than when you found it. And with race work, the reason why I cited those amazing people at the beginning, Gus, Gargi, Lisa, is because in some way, shape or form, they have all contributed something to the Toast and moved it on. And I guess the hope aspect of this is what can we all do to move it on? Because no one occupies the space forever. And I think the greatest way to honor a legacy is always to find a way to move the baton on.
So racism can pivot. It reinvents itself all the time. It's a sophisticated instrument. But what we have to be able to do is to maintain that dexterity, i.e. hope, and that agility in terms of how we negotiate and how we navigate these really hostile spaces. Um, you are about to be treated to a sumptuous main. Um, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate your time. It's an absolute privilege to be here with you and looking forward to learning from all of you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Uh, our next speaker is Professor Gargi Bhattacharya, uh, Professor of Sociology based in the Institute for Com uh, Connected Communities at the University of East London. She's also a member of the Centre for Migration, Refugees and Belonging. Her writing and scholarly activity has focused on changing cultures of racism and the manner in which discourses of sexuality are deployed as techniques of power. She has undertaken funded research examining vulnerable workers and the hospitality industry, the characteristics of the student city, remittance circuits, and political disengagement in Birmingham, changing understandings of poverty, trade unions, and the integration of migrants in Europe. She has been involved in the research teams of Go Home, Mapping Immigration Contro um, Controversy, and Conflict, Memory, and Displacement. I'll hand it over to you. Thanks so much. Shall I just try and shut off this one and get back? It's, it's all in somewhere. Yeah, you just need to click. Oh, you've got a clicker. Sorry, I forgot that. But you haven't got a mouse. Okay, thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much for having me. And thank you all for coming. Um, I don't know, I'm both more and less upbeat than Jason. Probably that's uh, all how it always is, isn't it? So I'll try and say a few things. And uh, anyway, I'll just say what I'm going to say. And, can someone tell me when it's about five minutes if it's near the end? Oh, thanks. <coughs> so we had a bit of a pre-meet, um, some of us online, before doing this, about what we thought we were going to try and think about, about what, what is it we're trying to do when we think about the 1990s from this moment. As Jason and Lisa have already said, there's nothing so familiar as the kind of state violence that's being expressed by Britain and across the world. Look, no surprise, you don't need the UN to tell us that the same people are being demonised, the same youth are being imprisoned, that people are being killed in the street and in their homes, and there is no retort from the state. Quite the opposite, the state is the one who did it. None of that kind of is a surprise for us. So then it's like, well, what are we doing when we reflect? Because it's so easy to feel like, oh, we didn't make a difference. And I think we need to get smarter than that because one of the ways that racism really works is by killing our ability to analyse the political moment we're in. As if every violence is the same violence, as if every, ba every battle ends up the same. So yes, I don't, absolutely, I don't deny that the 1990s was bad. It's extremely violent both institutionally and in the street. As um, Jason's already said, that there's a kind of uplift in the kind in the techniques of state violence. We shouldn't overplay that. Look, the whole idea of British statehood is based on institutional violence against the racially other people, both outside and inside. That's well embedded in British statehood. It's certainly in the whole post-war period. But in the 1990s, there's a bit of additional finessing that's going on in terms of UK state violence. 
And there's also a different move in terms of what kinds of state violence come into the centre. There isn't a lack of street violence, as people have said. You know, the racist murders are, are echoing the state violence, but there's a very organised racist street presence. But there's also a disorganised racist street presence. Yeah, there's people in the NF, but... I was, Lisa's heard me say this a billion times. It wasn't until I was adult that I could even conceive that you could be a white person who wasn't a racist. Because I never met a white person who didn't say, yeah, of course, I'm, you know, there's nothing else to be. What are you talking about? I grew up in Leicester, by the way. So I always laugh a bit when they talk about well, Leicester's great multicultural heritage. I think, oh, they're not the white people I grew up amongst. But something happens in the 90s. There's a different battle around whether everyone wants to be racist all of the time. And I think there's something differently energising about that moment. I know it's partly because that's, that's kind of my coming of political age. But to me, things seemed much more undecided in that period than when you, when you look backwards, you can see the events as they were finished, but we were living through them and they were not yet finished then. So when you're fighting something, you can't fight something and think it's already, you've already lost. You're fighting things and you're thinking, you know, we're changing the space. And I think we did all change the space. So I do think there's something shifting and opening, even in that name call of people who were killed, people who were deported, campaigns that were launched, families who had to rally themselves to get someone out of prison or to mourn their dead and also fight the state. There's something that was created and that made a kind of British anti-racist movement that reflected the needs of what British anti-racism needed. That was, wasn't only echoing what the United States said, however happy people were when famous Americans came to speak to us, because of course that's always how British anti-racism is. And it also was a moment, I think, a decade of great camaraderie, often in, in the face of extreme violence, but in a way for me, and I understand it's because I was not old enough in the 70s and 80s to really be out in the streets. A little bit of street work in the 80s, quickly before my mum brings, rushes, pushed me off the street. You know, stop collecting for the miners, stop being in this. But, she didn't stop me, but you know, there's only so much you can do when you're a kid. But in the, the 90s are my real coming of age. And there's a real sense that we are building something and that we are part of a movement, even if that movement is not an electoral movement or is not a movement that thinks we're going to seize power. That there's people who feel that they're part of what building a new world is, who are working in many different places. And it makes a difference to feel that you're part of that. And, and to not just feel it like in your head. It's before phones, so it, you know, it's none of it's on our phone. It's people I might have clocked somewhere. You know, we've stood outside somewhere, we've stood outside a police station, we've walked through some place where someone's been killed, we've been to the place where someone's being held, we've gone to the place where the family's saying they're trying to deport my family member. And it, it, makes, it makes something that I think we forget is what the um, kernel of resistance is about. And every time we lose, I think, oh, well, that isn't wiped out, those um, practices of solidarity. Sorry, I'm teaching you too much. I'm going to tell you the other stuff. So I really thought, because I was young and hyperactive, that we were at the beginning of some historic change. Not total victory. I wasn't completely stupid, even as a young person. But something 
unprecedented. And looking back, despite the many failures and disappointments, I don't know that I was wrong. I think we can underestimate the huge shifts that happen because there's so much continuing horror. But there was a huge shift. And the difference between 1970 and 1995, let alone 1995 to now, in terms of what is speakable, about what we collectively understand, about how we are able to speak to each other about who our enemies are and what our collective capacities and capabilities are, they are real gains, and they're not wiped out however much violence we face in response. So I'll try and say why I think that. When we were doing our pre-meet, I was saying, People forget, people forget, I don't know if people forget, old people talk about the past and young people say I wasn't born yet, as reality will happen. <laughs> but as, as a more recently old person, that the whole 1990s, I think, were extremely vibrant times for anti-racist street campaigning. For bad reasons, but in hugely energetic ways. The um, United Family and Friends campaign really comes out of a whole series of family campaigns against deaths in custody. And there were many, many, not only in London, but all around the country. And that people knew each other in those different campaigns. A whole load of work around deportation and um, bordering and the violence of immigration control. A whole set of campaigns around miscarriages of justice. And networks of people who arise out of those local campaigns all around the country that mean that when there's new racist laws, when there's new racist violence, you've got people you can call on. That's what an infrastructure of resistance looks like. We have to know each other. It doesn't matter if we know each other through our mobiles. I think that's a tool for us. But if we forget what um, our practices of solidarity are with each other, we don't have any resources left because that's our resource. Um, and alongside all of that kind of plethora of local campaigning with national reach, there was a very concerted effort to create alternative institutional structures through the very much maligned black voluntary sector, which I know, of course, now again, that like, feels like, oh, how stupid were we? Because everyone then tried to get local authority money and then local authority could shut, it, shut you down. But I think but you shouldn't say that people are... It's not like sheer dumbness that made people do that. People are trying to think about, on the one hand, we have to be able to respond to immediate attacks and give each other support. On the other hand, we have to be able to sustain spaces of solidarity and continuity. What could they be? And what I'm calling the black voluntary sector, and I know elements <coughs> of that, maybe you'll say something, you know, Highfields Community Centre is a version of that, isn't it? And there's other places like that up and down the country. And law centres, people forget law centres, because they all got shut down, but other kinds of spaces, of advice centres, including black art spaces, ways in which you can kind of have a space that can, you can do other things in, that you can be alongside what the state is, thank you, hurry up, um, but, um, but not completely reactive to violence, I'll try and hurry up. So I think it's um, important to focus on those tactical gains of that period. As I've already said, all of this stuff, it wasn't just London. It's happening all over. This dreadful banner I made in my front room, which is why I found it online. I drew this. Sapphire hated this picture because it didn't look anything like him because we didn't yet have the tech to have a projector. So I had to do it with some other kind of haphazard way. With, but 
it's part of my contribution, this is bad banner. <laughs> but all, and all of those local campaigns had kind of noble points, but we'd connect. And as I said, it was before online culture, so there's lots of travel between cities of groups of activists meeting each other or finding space to. There was always an attempt to make a national organisation, I have to say, always hampered by who was going to lead it. <laughs> Some things never change. But, um, <laughs> but despite that, a lot of both material and physical and personal solidarity that allows people in this place to say, well, something's going down, ring Birmingham, ring Manchester, ring Newham, ring Southall, <laughs> ring Leicester, who's going to come down, who's got a minibus, maybe the local community centre, before they lose their funding, has a minibus so we can get there. That's how you build those connections to each other that means that we are a force. And part of that was, um, so I'm going beyond a minute, I know I'm ne nearly done. This one and one other slide. Um, alongside all of this, there's also the period in which Lawrence Inquiry makes this rush amongst public organisations to be seen to do something. And I know that plenty of that was unfocused and perhaps not in good faith. It's my most generous reading. But it was still an opening. And there's lots of people, including people in this room, who use that small opening to wedge open something and make it happen. Like Lisa was saying, that suddenly, you know, let's, anyone who lived in Birmingham, it's quite clear that the Birmingham Library Museum service was not a service that was attentive to the local population of Birmingham. And that's to put it as overly politely. And yet, suddenly the Lawrence Inquiry, it just becomes possible to edge open a little bit of space to say, who lives in this city? Who are we serving? Who can we bring in? So there's lots of people doing quite knowingly, not in a rose-tinted glasses way, they know the limits, but making some tactical space. And I think we need to clock what could have happened with that, what's still there, and what those tactical spaces can be, because it's all tactics in the end anyway. And I think it became a tiny bit harder to be openly and aggressively racist in institutional spaces. That doesn't mean that the institutional spaces didn't learn to code their racism differently, but they changed it. They stopped being like, what are you doing here? And started to be like, oh, who's going to work on diversity? We need to hear that <laughs> and see what we, what we do in response. Because that's our job, isn't it? Clock what the enemy is doing, see how our response meets it. So, nostalgia. I often say this, that there's... A few years ago, I wrote, read um, a book by Bifo, Bifo, Bifardi, Franco Bifo Bifardi, is that what his name is? And he writes about how you should always be careful that you don't project your own melancholia at your own ageing onto how you read political events and the times. And I hold that in my head, because as you get a bit older and more knackered, it's easier to think, oh yeah, nothing's winnable, because I feel that lying down there. That's a mistake. So I understand absolutely that when I look at the 90s, I have an element of nostalgia for my own lost youth. That's the time when I was filled with a boundless energy. I could go you know, devote day and night to political work, go to three meetings and drive across the country in the night and drive back at three and then go to work in the morning. Because I was a kid. When you're a kid, you can do that. When you're an old lad, let me tell you, you cannot. <laughs> um, 
And I was high on the possibility of change, as every generation of young people must be. And that's something I want to say again and again. Political change requires us to be able to speak across generations so that the boundless hope of the young and the skill set of the old can come together in a way that we both hear each other and respect each other and enhance and amplify each other and are not in a battle for space. That's how we will all become free. So when we historicize our own lives, we need to avoid both easy cynicism, it's all hopeless, the races always win, they're all the same, but also romantic nostalgia, because those were the days. Our enemies, and we do have enemies, I and mean, I speak in that way, I think it's them and us. I change where the them and us is, and I think a lot of them can be brought over to us, but in the end, I think it's that kind of struggle. Our enemies work to consolidate their position, even as the world changes. They don't keep singing the same song. So we need to adapt our anti-racism accordingly. We need to learn an analysis which sees how the violence changes, how our points of tactics change, how our ability to support each other can still be resurrected. Things may be differently bad, but of course I always think there are possibilities. Why bother to meet if we don't believe this? Thank you for your time. Last but not least, uh, we have Professor Gus John. Um, Professor Gus was born in uh, Grenada, East Caribbean, and has lived, ma lived mainly in the UK since 1964. He was a member of the Campaign Against Discrimination in the middle to late 1960s and a member of the Council of the Institute of Race Relations in the early 1970s. Professor John is a scholar, activist, and social analyst who has done notable work in the fields of education policy, children's rights, and the role of schooling and education in promoting social justice, school improvement, management, and international development. Since the 1960s, he has been active in issues of education and schooling in Britain's inner cities such as London, Leicester, Birmingham, Manchester, and Glasgow. A respected elder within the African diaspora in the UK, Professor John is a sought-after public speaker and media commentator. Since 2006, Professor John has been a member of the African Union's Technical Committee of Experts, working on modalities for reunifying Africa and its global diaspora as part of its sixth, sixth region initiative. He has advised member states in Africa and the Caribbean on meeting the sustainable development goals related to education and youth, and in particular, enhancing access to schooling for girls. I'll hand it over to you, Professor. Thank you. I think after all that, you don't need to hear anything more from me. Friends, good evening. I want to thank my colleagues who have gone before me. And I want to associate myself with and endorse everything that Jason shared with us about those wonderful people who are in the center. Okay, so um, while we were preparing for this, I, 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 I circulated the paper to my colleagues, which Lisa very kindly printed for me this evening. But which I've left up there. <laughs> not, not that I consider it no longer to be relevant, but those two colleagues have sparked things in my head. And as Lisa and I were saying earlier, I work with streams of consciousness. So why were the 1990s particularly significant 
for me in the context of Stephen's murder. I worked with the ILEA, in the Mountain Education Authority, in the late, middle to late 1980s. In 1986, a young boy, Bangladeshi Ahmed Iqbal Ullah, was murdered at Burnage High School in South Manchester by a 14-year-old white boy called Darren Colburn. Ian MacDonald QC was asked by Manchester City Council to conduct an inquiry, a commission of inquiry, into the circumstances surrounding that murder. In time, Ian, myself, a colleague, uh, Rina Vavnani, Pakistani, um, Lady Khan, Bangladeshi, uh, we wrote a book about this inquiry called Murder in the Playground. And we rather hoped that it would be adopted or at least be considered by the state in terms of what it was saying about race and racism and, and schooling and so on. That did not happen. But we kept going around the country, sowing those ideas and trying to get people to understand why it was so important to focus on what caused that murder and how children, black and white, could be assisted in gaining some understanding of themselves, of the society they're trying to build, of how racism operates in their lives. Come 1989, Margaret Thatcher abolished the Inner London Education Authority and made it necessary for all the 12 Inner London boroughs to have their own education services. And I was appointed, middle 1989, the Director of Education for the London Borough of Hackney, thus becoming the first Black Director of Education in, in, in the UK. Now, what is important, I think, for us to understand is this, that in that period, including the period of uh, Stephen's murder, we were still in the wilderness of Thatcherism. And that had a major impact upon how we were expected to see ourselves, what we did. Um, and for example, as a director of education, I had to contend with and resist the number of schools that wanted to go grant maintained. Some of you will remember what that means. It was the precursor of academies taking schools out of the control of the local authority, etc. And I wrote for uh, Hackney Council what I thought a local curriculum for Hackney should be, given its demography, its history, etc., and how that should relate to the national curriculum. And at that time, practically every education committee meeting we had, I tried to focus the Education Committee in Hackney on the need to ensure that our schools were addressing the legacy of racism. What is the purpose and function of education and schooling in a post-colonial, post-imperial society such as this? How do children get an understanding of where 
racism comes from, how they're implicitly connected with it, especially if they're white, and what does that say about their sense of self, their sense of identity, their relationship with others who are not like themselves, and, and, and so on. So we had all of those debates going on in the 1990s. Then comes Stephen's murder, and uh, McPherson does the report, there's a concentration on institutional racism and, and, and so forth. So all the things that people like me as an activist, education activist, uh, had been doing, in my case since 1965, as a student at Oxford and um, a, a, an activist working with children of Caribbean families, car workers, uh, women working in hospitals, Churchill and Radcliffe in that city, and started, I started with some of those parents, the first black supplementary school in Cowley Road in Oxford in 1965. Okay, so all of that history is brought into my role as the director of education. And helping people to understand that tragedy, not simply in terms of who the white people were who stabbed Stephen, but how the police reacted was quite important. Because you see, for me, then and now, the critical issue is this. The state, as, as, as Gandhi was trying to tell us, the state itself has been responsible for perpetuating racism. It saw that as its function, particularly after the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act, when it tried to prevent more and more people who had been designated citizens of the United Kingdom and colonies from coming to this country. So immigration and immigration control became central to local government and central government's concerns. And that has, it has an impact. So for me, there is a spectrum with, on the one hand, the state and all its policies, uh, including what we have now with these lunatics, Patel, Cruella, Benjamin, Braverman, and, 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 and um, that sorry lot. Okay. So the, the, the point is this. The, the, the state is at that end of the spectrum, and along the spectrum, people fall in different categories, whether they be managers of institutions, the police, the court system, and so on. And at the other end, you have the neo-fascists, Britain First, National Front, British National Party, etc., all on the same spectrum. Because if you talk to those at the, that far end, they would tell you, and some of them actually believe it, that they, they're trying to control the black population on behalf of the state. That's where their legitimacy comes from. So what does that mean for us? It means that we need to be very careful about how we, how we deal with our democratic processes in this country. I have never believed, and, and my study as a, as a social analyst and a, 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 a 
social policy lecturer, I have never believed that the British state had any intention whatsoever to examine its responsibilities as far as the legacy of empire was concerned. And it has demonstrated that over and over and over again. Okay, so if we have a Labour Party and a Conservative Party mirroring one another more and more, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if next week they decided to marry up. <laughs> if we have that, then the question is, where do we find the room for maneuver? Where do we, how could we, pro, pro, how do we provide, how do we create the alternatives to that binary system that screws us out of the world? That's, that's the challenge that we have. So after Stephen was murdered, there was this stuff about institutional racism, which didn't take account of what I've just said, i.e. that racism is systemic within the society, it's structural as well as institutional, it's cultural as well as personal. How do we then find the space to do the organization that will help change the narrative, change the culture, and give young people the hope that Gandhi was talking about, that they could build a more equitable future. I've got two proposals, and I shall end with those. The first is this. Yes, there are groups within communities organizing in the way that Gandhi has mentioned. But then we have one phenomenon which is interesting. Where there are five and six and 10 black people in any employment situation, you have a black staff network or a black members group. They proliferate all around the place. But they remain individual units of organization. They have no formal connectedness, although they might speak to one another, etc. So if you have them in the police, the Crown Prosecution Service, every university that I know, schools, the National Education Union, and so on. The question is, just what the hell is the point of them? Okay, they may give support to one another, especially in situations where their own unions don't support them because the people who, are, who they are complaining against are themselves members of the union. We've had to deal with that since the 1960s. So the question is, why can't there be a federation, a national federation, of these black members groups, black staff networks, etc., so that they can speak collectively with one voice. So when Suella Braverman comes up with some nonsense, there can be a response from all of those people representing thousands of workers in the country. That's the first point. My second point, and perhaps a more important one, is this. Even the Labour government, when it came into power in 1997, and, and I remember having those arguments with Jack Straw, Tony Blair asked me to be one of his advisors on a race relations forum that they established. And we talked about all sorts of things. We talked about Stephen Lawrence. We talked about the decision the government was making to have a Holocaust memorial and we asked why was there not a memorial for African enslavement? And the issue was doubt. 
So we have an annual Holocaust memorial. And when the government, when the, the, the uh, uh, um, group organizing a statue to uh, <coughs> enslavement asked the government for four million pounds, they said they had no money. The very next week, they pledged to give 100 million pounds to the Jewish community to establish a, a, a memorial. All of that was going on. But then the, the Commission for Racial Equality even, after the 2000 Race Relations Amendment Act, was not equipped to be a proper watchdog or regulator in terms of how institutions were or were not discharging the public sector equality duty. Herman Osley, as the chair of the CRE, did his best over many years. But government itself, a labor government, determined that they would not resource that organization in the manner that it needed to be resourced if one was going to make delivering rights to black people not something idiosyncratic depending upon the particular disposition of this manager or this institution or not. And what I'm saying is this, we collectively, black and white, have got to campaign so that there is brought into being a race discrimination register similar to the sexual offenders register so when manager X decides to discriminate against somebody, it's not enough for the institution to pay 100,000 pounds, 300,000 pounds or whatever. So you send somebody away with some money, having ruined their mental health and their career, and the person who's discriminated against them either stay in position or get promoted. And my, my point is that if, you, if we're going to take defending the rights of black people seriously, if we're going to take the implications of that murder of Stephen seriously, we need to have a different narrative, change the power relationships, and ensure that everybody is taking seriously the fact that black people are still being dumped upon in the society. to the conversation section of the evening now. Yeah, if you all come to the front and take a seat. So what we're going to do is have a conversation um, with the panel, and then we're going to open it up to the floor. So firstly, um, I just want to thank you all for your powerful contributions to this conversation and for turning what really could be quite um, a, a, a kind of conversation that doesn't offer up hope, turn it into somewhere that where there are practical forms of hope. Um, there's, there are crevices and glimpses um, of hope. And also I think there is, there's a sense in which um, 
there's a reason for us to start thinking collectively about what is a call for action, what is the change that is needed um, in this present and current moment. So I wanted to kind of draw firstly on um, part of the conversation that is about expanding this idea of, of hope within this current political moment where we see, as, we, as has been rightly pointed out, the state is at the forefront, leading the charge effectively on how we understand and how we live and we're conditioned through a po politics and a culture of racism, ongoing patterns of racism. So I wanted to kind of ask the panel, just to kind of say a bit more about what that hope looks like in this political moment, because I think, like has been pointed out for many of us, over that 30-year period, sorry, can you hear me at the back? Yeah, over that 30-year period, there is a sense in which um, we could argue that things might not have changed and that things have stayed the same. So what are the, what are the glimmers of hope that we can kind of draw on in this, in this current time? I, <laughs> what are you looking at me? <laughs> I think I think um, I think we it's 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 useful to think in terms of the criteria by which we judge whether we've made progress or not, right? Um, one of the things I find deeply concerning is the direction in which schooling and education has been moving, including in institutions such as this. Um, I believe, as Paolo Freire, my, 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 my guru, uh, famously said, uh, that education doesn't change society. Education changes people. People change society. So when one, when one interrogates the function of schooling and education, then you, you, you begin, I begin to, to get very, very worried. I mean, you know, okay, so I've been an activist all my life, pretty much. At the age of six, I was burning down sugar plantations in Grenada with my father and other, other farmers from our village because they were being denied the fundamentals of bread, freedom, and justice. Okay, so what is then the, the what, 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 are this, what is the schooling system doing to children, black and white, who have the unenviable task of building a future society in Britain? Where, where are they getting their inspiration from? If we don't, within our own communities, as we did with supplementary schools, introduce them to scholars of the past, to activists of the past, to resistance movements, to so that they could stand upon the shoulders of people who have done things in pursuit of freedom and of human liberation, then they are totally lost. And I believe that, that what, what gives me hope is that in spite of the uselessness of the schooling system, there are young people who are finding it within themselves and amongst one another to use their creativity 
to have a vision for the future and to work towards that. It's not organized. It's, it's in many instances, um, um, very, very uh, uh, segregated. But, but that, that, that gives me hope. Um, and as I say to my children, I've got 10 grandchildren. I mean, I was with one of them last night for a good few hours having fun. The, the, the critical thing is this, that as Mark Twain said, do not allow your schooling to interfere with your education. <laughs> and that, that's a critical thing. So that we have got to guide them in terms of how to shape their education. These schools are teaching them absolutely nothing in that regard. So how do we form our, our uh, uh, organizations and systems within our communities where we do that? And it doesn't, it doesn't just depend on Instagram and TikTok and all of these other funny things. <laughs> that's, that's the question. That's number one. Number two, how do we ensure that people have the, 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 the sense, the will, and, and the belief in collective action to bring about change that, that Gargi talked about earlier, so that they don't put up with nonsense. They, they are willing to challenge injustice, enriching to themselves and others like themselves, um, and to do so fearlessly. Okay, that's what's kept me going for God knows 70-something <laughs> years. But, but that's quite important. So the hope comes really when one is able to see young people in spite of all the other deficiencies in the systems that they put through, having that faith and courage and belief in themselves, comfortably in their own skin, and, 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 and not sufficiently soaked in the system, that they feel they can't criticize it or challenge what happens to them, whether it be police on the streets or uh, the war on youth or whatever else it may be. That's, that, that's, that's my take on it. So, so first, I'm always a bit surprised about, oh, are we not hopeful? Because I feel like actually this is a very exciting, a very dangerous but very exciting time. And I think we've been living through a recent period where We've seen uh, uh, street activism against state racism beyond anything I've ever lived through, and probably anything that anyone in this room has ever, ever lived through before, very much led by the young globally, beyond Britain, across the world, in a way which says absolutely that the state is an instrument of violence and an instrument of racist violence, and pretty much challenging all of us old folk to, why have you been engaging with the state for so long? Why do you think you can reform that? You cannot reform this. And that, I think, for people 40 and younger, is the common sense. It's almost impossible to persuade people who are earlier in their political lifetimes of anything other than that. And I think they're right. Now, that changes the whole landscape of what 
our collective action is, how we think progress happens, and much more turns it back to our relationships between ourselves, mm. what community self-defence means, once you think that you cannot reform this, what does survival mean when you cannot reform this, and I think when that moment of politics and everything is becoming possible, so then I feel like, oh, I'm glad I've lived long enough to see that, because... I think what was really depressing was the rounds of trying to reform it. You know, that, that's what's been killing it, you know, killing our spirits. The sense that actually freedom lies elsewhere. Freedom lies in our relations to each other. Freedom lies in our ability to make a realistic collectivity that sustains all our lives, which we're both looking at state racism, but also looks at climate catastrophe, that looks as the border of one instrument of state violence and the police as another, and education as another. And I'm seeing young people, it's, you know, the young are saying that, the young are leading that, the young are mobilising on that and, and alongside each other. And what is, you know, I don't care, you know, it's not always about persuading white people, but younger white people get that in an instant. You don't have to do anti-racist awareness training with younger white people, because <laughs> younger white activists understand that their activism is always also about state racism. So that's, oh, well, that's a, that's a gain. That's a gain of that last 30 years that we're talking about. That we're no longer saying, oh, well, let me think, oh, boo-hoo, my whiteness. Forget that. Forget that. That is, our collective survival depends on us understanding the machineries that are killing us all, but differentially, and who amongst the young politically active community globally doesn't understand that. Take hope, people. If this cannot save us, what will save us? And if we're not part of it yet, go out and be part of it. Because it's there for us to be part of, isn't it? This is because I've drunk the Kool-Aid, as I should <laughs> 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 um, Yeah, I, I guess, to be honest with you, like, um, most, of, most of my life, I've, I've spent being told, what are you smiling like, what, what, are you, what are you smiling at? Smiling there's at nothing everyone, to smile yeah, about. No, yeah, this is it, there's nothing to smile about. But... I've always, my, my innate belief in hope lies in human beings. And the way I was brought up is to always look for the best in people. So while, while there's, there's a kind of, there's a melancholia associated with that and there's a romanticism associated with that, it never ceases to amaze me just what human beings can achieve. Um, and I think when, you know, as Gargi's kind of beautifully put and, and, and Gus, when you move past that kind of twitching fingers and you have something that resembles this collective fist, it's just amazing what you can achieve. And I guess that baton is passed down intergenerationally in some respects. So you kind of see new people taking a charge. And I guess the kind of catalyst for that or the stimulus for that is young people. You know, they kind of take that charge and bring something renewed to it. And I guess, you know, with the political mechanisms we have in place, racism, um, you know, stubbornly persists. It's almost like kind of sympathy for the devil where racism is concerned, because um, it always finds this way to kind of. Re it's kind of admirable, you know, how racism finds a way to kind of div div be divisive towards new generations who come with new ideas trying to address this problem. But I think probably the most important thing is this idea of hope, and I just think that um, hope um, in this kind of circle of love. I think it's hugely important because I think what the state and racism has been able to thrive on, actually, quite ironically, is the divisive mechanisms that have happened within our inter-communities. 
Um, and I think that, you know, what Gargi mentions about that cohesiveness and that collectivism becomes hugely important in increasingly um, political and societal divisive times. So I think that sense of hope and that sense of belief has always been something that's kind of been instilled in me as a, as a, as a kid, even though both my parents are not like that, and nor my brothers. But, like, um, but there's always this sense that um, hope springs eternal in human beings. And when hearts and minds align, I, I do think it can overthrow just about anything, but then that might be the, the romanticist in me. Or the hippie in me. Thank you for all those responses, because I think one of the um, key questions, I guess, is, is around this idea of what does that collective, what does collectivity look like? What does solidarity look like? What does reflecting back on the 1990s and the, um, as I mentioned in the introduction there was a, a very interesting mix of campaigning happening around Stephen at the time. Different groups were active um, in that campaign and not necessarily all speaking from the same hymn sheet but actually involved in the same kind of cause and I think what is interesting is um, we, I don't think it's helpful necessarily all, all the time to focus on the state um, because what we haven't really focused on is the meaning of that activism from that period and what I guess what is the what's the consequences of that that political period that produced a particular type of anti-racism. Mm -hmm. And what is that anti-racism? How do we describe it? How do we define it? How do we understand it? <coughs> um, I don't know if any of you can kind of shed some light on, on that. I was gonna say, there is a collectivism about that period that I envy mm -hmm. massively. Um, I, I don't know why, but um, there's a franchising of anti-racism where it's almost like a, a rush to the top. So sometimes a lot of anti-racist endeavour is situated um, in, in being famous, if I'm going to be absolutely mm -hmm. honest. Um, and, and, I, and I guess that, that part is problematic because you know you look at the matter, you look, and you, you look at that kind of collectivism, there's actually a lot to be gained from, sorry, there's a lot to be gained from individualism in terms of kind of anti-racism. Um, and I guess that's been peddled in a really interesting way. I mean, it would be good to, but I always look and gaze on the 90s and kind of I'm a bit jealous and wish I was of age in that time because there was something really special about, you know, the 80s, the 90s in terms of that collectivism. But it'd be interesting to hear what kind of Gargi um, and, and Gus have to say on that as well. It's true, nobody was famous in the 1990s. None of us were famous. Well, it's really interesting, I was trying to look for pictures, and you can't find any um, people of colour in, in pictures of 90s Britain like we weren't there. Yeah. Mm. yeah. <coughs> Two things over that. Um, sorry, can I say something? Um, sorry, do you mind? Go ahead. Um, Talking about hope, I think um, hope and, and expectations almost have uh, uh, you know, two, two sides of the same coin. And uh, I think you can have hope without expectations, which keeps the momentum going. Uh, I went to uh, the demonstration to do with student violence, um, and 
and uh, I remember that when you talk about institutionality racism that the public was still there and uh, you know there was a real kind of staunch guard about the bunker and there we were massive demonstration going past this bunker and the level of kind of conflict within I suppose the dichotomy of having um, you know uh, the ants and, and, and the drive to um, back against equality versus this kind of almost scary tactic of the police protecting the bunker was palpable and you can't forget that you know um, Sorry, can you explain? I don't really know what you mean by the bunker here. Oh, uh, it was uh, the BNP bunker was exactly in the same area. Right, okay. Oh, the, in the, where the, the demonstration was yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but, yeah, I, I can remember almost uh, like it was yesterday, the kind of, you know, uh, you know, the feelings and, and, as I said, the dichotomy that was taking place at that time. In the 90s, I was working um, with Translation uh, uh, Fostering and Adoption. Um, and I suppose, um, for me, the, the learning over years has been about learning about me. Who am I? You know, because wherever you go as a black person, you're asked, oh, where do you come from? That is about asking, who are you? And for me, the hope has been about self-discovery, about finding out who am I? And that has given me insight into Actually, you know, we celebrated the, the Queen's 90-something birthday and, you know, we mourned her death and all the rest. But she was governing the state when we were being occupied, you know, and where the struggles of our countries were, were about equality and, and people forget that. So whilst I respect this thing about um, education, self-education, self-awareness, I think is such an important aspect of our own understanding of who we are as a people. And um, insights into you know where do we come from actually where do you know how did we get to where we are you know and so when people ask us who are we and and uh, you know we, um, my children who are born here um, in their forties you know one of them is here he um, <laughs> knew you were going to say that this place when I land oh man you know uh, uh, oh, where do you originate from you know so there's still that um, lack of knowledge. So uh, I think it's also uh, having an insight that uh, lack of understanding, lack of education, lack of knowledge of misinformation has been for both parties in, 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 the, uh, in the battle, if you like, black and white. And uh, uh, we've recently started having these um, uh, warm spaces thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're rubbing shoulders with, with uh, the older white generation, which we've never had the opportunity to do previously. And it amazed me, really, in those discussions about how unaware they are about who we are. You know, how did we get here? And the relationships we had with the colonial masters and um, the kind of oppression that they themselves had if they weren't from the elite. You know, anyway, that's Thank my you. story. So hope is there. But also, I think empowerment in our own history, our own understanding of who we are, is really important. We are going to open up the floor for more questions, so do please um, bear with us. But we just wanted to ask, I wanted to ask if you all had any questions <coughs> of each other in terms, and Fatima, did you have a question that you wanted to ask? I, I, I did have a question, yeah. yeah. Um, 
So, uh, Gargi, you mentioned that, you know, um, in the 90s, as much as it was the case in the previous decades, that there was a finessing of, of the racism. And I guess one of the things that I'm struggling with and I'm seeing amongst young people that I teach or young people that I do, um, you know, I'm a part of a collective where we do a lot of, uh, you know, um, you know, a lot of um, supplementary education. Uh, mm. We do lots of Zoom stuff with young people. But um, I feel like a lot of young people are so consumed by, and I can't emphasize this enough, consumed by representational politics, mm -hmm. right? And because they're so consumed by it that, because obviously <laughs> now the finessing of the racism today is the fact that you have a South Asian prime minister, mm -hmm. right? Then you have all these other various figures, you know, you know, black and Asian figures in, in different posts. So, yeah, like how do we, I guess what I'm trying to, I, I, I want to understand also just for myself when I'm in those spaces is how do we get that through to the young people that actually there are those who look like us who are fascists, who are, you know, all those things. But I think because they're so, they're, they're literally warped by the visual mm -hmm. of seeing Sunak and Braverman and Badenoch and, you know, uh, Phillips, you know. So, so I think, how do we break that gaze that they have that is so tunnel visioned at these individuals? Uh, and they feel this possibility of, actually, then I can, I can become whatever I want to become. So I guess, yeah, how, how do we break that? Because that represent, uh, representational politics has such a hold over people um, and I find it quite worrying um, yeah so how do we so collective action I agree with of course but I feel like representational politics is the one thing I'm seeing that has such a grip over people that I don't know how we get rid of that grip um, for people to understand that people who look like us are, can inflict as much violence as white people because that's always been you know how it's been framed so yeah how do we get rid of that grip that has captured so many young you know, racially minoritized people in the UK. Of course, what you're describing is precisely how the state has captured the discourse of anti-racism and turned it into a technique of state violence. That's exactly it. So partly we need to be more confident in our political discussion with each other to say that is the flavor of state violence in our time that while you are dying in the streets, someone who ostensibly looks like you will be on TV saying why it's the right thing to do. So, but, and I think we have to head up, take up head on the politics of representation because that of course, both by um, corporate capital and by states all over the world is what has been taken up. Now our best songs, the right take, don't they? So representation, they've taken it. So I don't see without us saying, no, you're mistaken. And what's difficult, of course, is that we also have fallen into a way of thinking that I face racism, therefore I know how racism works. And as if all of us, when we talk about how we feel about it, that's our political analysis. Somehow we have to get beyond that. We have to find a way to say, yes, everyone's experience is legitimate and important, and yet no one person's experience can be our collective political analysis. Because it's about politics, not about feeling. And we also, and partly, I hear what you're saying, of course there are young people who think that, but there's also all of the other young people who say, um, you know, black and brown faces in high places is a fiction. So that battle is happening. And the whole battle around abolition is also a battle about saying, no, there is, if you can't reform this, you certainly can't head it. So I think that it's, we, it's our job to bring that out 
to bring out, and it's difficult because people are hopeful. People are hopeful that not only will I not be killed, but perhaps I'll be a brown billionaire. <laughs> and we have to say, do you know what? I understand why you hope that, but let us look at how capital makes our lives. Let us look at how state racism makes our lives. Let us look at how long we are living. Let us look at how we are dying earlier. Let us look at who eats and who does not eat. All of those things which are painful to look at and then say, can the answer to this be that you finesse your personal statement some more? Or can it be that we must think of a politics that answers systemic inequality. Now, I don't think, as anti-racists, we have been very assertive about that in recent years. I think we also have been in the politics of representation, and I think we should not be. I also think there's lots of anti-racism that happens individually online, some of which is great, but it's unsystematic, isn't it? Mm -hmm that an influencer who makes me feel better in this moment is as good as a collective that allows me to gain a gain here. So, so there's something also about, you know, that, that's the tactic, that's the tactical call, isn't it? What do we have to do in this moment where people are much more literate in speaking about where you can see racism, but much as illiterate as they ever were about how you make systemic change that makes our lives better? And I think also, even projects like the SLRC, um, projects that come in and are doing things within these spaces, are part of that politics of representation. Absolutely. We, yeah. we, we are difficult. part, we are navigating what it means to be, have that public persona, doing, trying to do work, but also navigating all of that stuff around what it means to have this public space, what it means to be doing this work on behalf of a university, any university, um, and knowing what the operational politics are behind the scenes of that university. And I think that is something that also, it, it reminds us how much we, there is a lot of precar precari precariousness around the work that we do. You know, we don't know, nobody knows how long these in, these yeah. initiatives yeah. are going to survive. Absolutely. So you do what you can whilst you mm -hmm. they're here, until they you know with the anticipation they could survive, but the anticipation anticipation that they actually will be dismantled. Mm -hmm. And I think that's always the kind of politics that we're working with within mm -hmm. this kind of space of representation. Yeah, but having said that, I have a firm belief that. Whether they're dismantled or not uh, doesn't simply depend upon those who have a vested interest in preserving other parts of the body rather than this. Um, if, we, if, we, if we activate ourselves and, and ensure that by doing what we do with this space, um, by demanding that the space has got more relevance to the rest of the institution and is not just a kind of adjunct, mm. then its purpose becomes as central as whatever else people want to preserve in this place. In other words, what I'm saying is the, the possibility of, of, of dismantling and 
um, um, demolishing is, 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 is there, but quite often we create the conditions in which it can happen more easily than others. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's, that's, that's one concern I have. The, 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 the point I was going to make really earlier really is this, um, talking about the 1990s, uh, I can't remember what year it was, I think it was 1991. Um, I was in Hackney, but I was called to Manchester where I had been before joining Ilium uh, because the first of these murders of a black teenager by another black teenager took place in the shopping precinct near where my office used to be at the time. And we've had a, a whole lot of those since then. But as you know, hundreds. Um, so that even that has become kind of normalized within the society. Our communities have become sensitized to it. Um, young people, when I was young, um, uh, I never went to any funeral of anybody who was below the age of about 80. These young people are burying one another practically every week and putting on their glad rags and going to have a party afterwards as if they go into a blues dance. Uh, perfectly normal. Um, many of them don't expect to live beyond a certain age. But as a community, we very rarely look at the structural reasons for that. Where did that come from? And if we believe that those young black people or all black people do not have some kind of a genetic propensity to evil, murder, and mayhem, then we've got to, we've got to find some reasons, some structural reasons for, for understanding all of that. Um, and and the, 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 the problem really is this. Um, there are those parents who dump upon one another and say, well, you know, if they were parenting better, these children wouldn't get into that kind of stuff. And that's indicative of the kind of values that there are in the home and so on. I'm talking about, I'm talking about other black parents, right? Which brings me to, 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 to the other point, which is that um, much of that representational politics stuff uh, has got to do with how people defi define diversity. Um, growing up as an activist as, 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 as I was, I have never been in any way, shape or form confused about the fact that Although we, uh, black people, experiencing racism, whether we're from the African diaspora or the Asian diaspora, um, there were loads of us who, as Sivan and at the Institute of Race Relations used to say, we have the experience of racism, but we miss the meaning completely. Um, and, and along that spectrum, there are people who are radical and revolutionary, and there are those who are backward, and there are others who are decidedly reactionary. But they're all part of our community. That's the internal diversity that we have in terms of politics, in terms of orientation and, and capitalism or whatever else it might be. Now, that has got certain implications, it seems to me. So when Operation Black Vote 
started talking about it doesn't really matter which party you're from or what, whatever you do. The important thing is that you vote and we, we give you an opportunity to shadow MPs so that you see what becoming a parliamentarian is like and so on. If that leads to a Badenoch or a Braverman or whatever it is, that's incidental. Now, I have never believed that, and Simon Woolley and I had fights about that nonsense regularly. Um, because you see, you can get into the optics of diversity, which is what this representation of people in cabinet is about. It's, it's totally, it's total optics. And it doesn't begin to deal with the issue of why are you there? What expectations should people have of you, black and white, while you are there? And what, what is it you're part of? If it is the state peddling racism and structuring racism as, as, as it is, and you're representing the state, are you there to try with your other colleagues, whoever they may be, to say, in these little incremental ways, we're going to change X, Y, and Z? Or are you there to demonstrate to the white population that you can be as brutal and barbaric and fascist as the rest of them? It's a fundamental question. So I want to open it up to the floor to ask um, anybody in the audience if they have any questions and just to keep an eye on time. 10 minutes? Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. 10 minutes for Q&A. <clears throat> 10 minutes for Q&A. Okay. Hi, uh, my name is Solomon. Um, Charity for Maslaha, basically selling the minority criminal justice program. Um, What's your charity called? Maslaha. We seek to challenge inequalities faced by Muslims in education, gender rights, and criminal justice. Okay. Um, just more of a comment than a question. Um, interesting to hear from you guys about racism in the 1990s. For myself, I mean, I probably came up political age post 9/11. This emergence of Islamophobia, and it starts to sort of the question of intersectionality and how important it's been in this decade more than ever. Um, and just from the work that we do with a lot of people in prisons um, in the community around sort of being black and Muslim or being brown and Muslim and how that somehow can be a double disadvantage, especially in a prison environment or a criminal justice setting. And it starts to sort of lead the question within people like, who's a suspect? Is it the colour of my skin or is it the religion I follow? So I think in the last decade that's probably been more of a an issue um, than ever in terms of intersectionality and sort of how that portrays itself in a criminal system or in racism is generally itself. So it's just a comment that I had um, just mm -hmm. from what was being said, but I just wanted to address that. Thank you. Did anybody else have a question before we kind of respond? Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, a bit of a comment, but two in two parts. I think it might be just my own opinion, but we're kind of moving into a a place where young, I'm going to say young, young black men are almost disappearing again and being forgotten in different realms. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's quite scary. When I look at, you know, the population in Leicester, I think there's probably 10,000 black people in Leicester, that includes the Caribbean people. 2.9 um, Caribbean, 2.9% Caribbean. Yeah, so and it's very low. 6.5% African. 
in the last census um, and uh, it was a dwindling aboriginal community and a rapidly growing african community um, but the figures don't match up in terms of where the caribbean community has gone because they haven't in, um, overlaid that with um, things to do with covid things to do with the criminal, uh, criminal justice system and things to do with um, um, people who are sectioned so there's a whole sort of work to be done on that because there are no Figures that came out about a month ago. In Leicester. In Leicester. So there's, again, so the South Asian population, Leicester's probably about four or five times bigger mm -hmm. in the Caribbean population. So I think there is an element around that, and that's just not just about education, it's about the whole raft of things. But one of the things I think I skipped over is when, to understand where I was from, and someone mentioned where are you from, where are we from? And it was only two years ago I did my, did my DNA and realised where I actually. Kind of came from so to speak as much as that can tell me and i knew it was going to be west africa but i'm nigerian any nigerians in the house but it was a matter of i kind of skipped over that and then i realized a few days later or a few weeks later that was quite a big moment for me because up until that point you know i'm just from these caribbean islands and i knew i was from somewhere else but where is that other place but i think as well we, we're not even too sure about you know does that matter to some people maybe it doesn't but it's about that that lineage as well and that, you know, that kind of dwindling, like I said, dwindling society within this country. Anybody else? It would be good just to hear comments because, you know, yeah. this is our only chance to be together. <laughs> I think there was... Yes, me. Oh, thanks. I apologise, I missed three of the talks, so... <laughs> All three of them, you mean? Two of them, two one of the things in, in the 90s we, we used to say is when the BNP started saying British first, is this is just like 68 mm -hmm. in the Ontology position. In the 68 people would say, this is not nearly as bad as 38. <laughs> 38 was like the time before. And I think it is one of the things we're going to talk about 30 years ago is where, where do we stop and start the story? Because you can start the story with the Abyssinian campaign in the 20s and how that changes into something in the 50s and I think, and I think there is a continuity of struggle against the British state and the colonialism and the debates don't shift that much in lots of respects but what there is something that's changing now which is that if we look at the demography of most of the cities we are going to be the majority and neither does the local democracy or the parliamentary democracy represent us properly there's a, there's a debate about changing how politics is done. It's done that we need to think about what that means because the representation, the political system is geared towards keeping the suburbs in power, which doesn't represent us. And the, the second thing I wanted to say is if we look at the debates that CLR James would have, or Claudia Jones would have, or Joshi would have, but those internal divisions on race, class, and uh, identity have always been present in different dynamics. And we've always had these debates in, we've always, if you look at the history of police surveillance of our struggles, including the Lawrence, those internal debates, is, is despite this, despite the conflicts, the police, well, they've never understood this, how can we still have solidarity? Mm -hmm. that, that, and then we shouldn't, we shouldn't think of solidarity as the absence of conflict because the internal conflicts are, are, part, are part of the building of the solidarity and all of the stop and start and change people. And I think 
we need to talk about those internal conflicts we always have. And I think something's shifting now because of the whole class of people that we know how to make, the whole class of our community that make money and join the toys. We're slightly shifting the dynamics slightly, but we need to talk about those terms like, and how those dynamics are part of the system that needs racism for you to survive. Which has been a continuous part of that history struggle of, of coming to terms with that. And I think we, we, we do need to think about solidarity a lot more in collective because one of the things I think it was uh, Cedric Washington who talked about in the speech about the first thing they do to kill community is to attack the culture of building communities with collective histories. And it's those collective histories that we do need to think about in more detail rather than the way that they do is to do single names here and there. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, and what a fantastic event. Thank you. And Gus, when you mentioned Rina Bagnani, I was just, I <coughs> sort of skipped back really, to Rima's mum, Raj, who was one of these really radical India teachers like my mum. It's really lovely to hear Jason talking about your mum. So I was thinking a lot intergenerationally and particularly women who fought imperialism back home and then how they passed that spirit on and we pass it on. So I think that's really fantastic that you touched on that so many times and I kind of think I took my children to stop the war marches and anti-racist marches so hopefully they're on some platform somewhere going yeah well done mum I think they're probably writing songs about it more than going on platforms but you know again this stuff about music is really key and finding a voice and then I think just internationally as well I'm you know when I think about the 90s I think of what was happening in Gujarat I think of fascism I think of like you know how much of that comes back to haunt us in Leicester sure. at the moment. We know in Highfields that mm. our kids are sorting stuff out. Sorry, young people. Mm. I've got kids too. Young people are sorting stuff out and are incredibly, you know, what Donna was saying, very nuanced in our conversations. So thank you. There's a lot, you know, emotionally there's a lot mm -hmm. in this. But, you know, we keep going, don't we? Every day, it's really stimulating. I'm also doing my PhD, I think, like some of us are. So I think it's kind of lifelong, isn't it? Gus, you would be so glad a little Ilya child in her 50s is doing her PhD, because it was that thing about we grew up in London. It's lifelong, it's in our blood, isn't sure, it? Sure, we were sure, sure. just taught to learn, really. That was the thing that was passed on. And we keep going cradle to grave, so thank you. Thank you. Five, minute, five minutes? Yeah. Yeah? Okay, so it's, um, I'll come. Graduate now, Sophie. Yourself. Um, thank, you, thank you so much for um, this event. Um, something that Jason said that really resonated with me. Could you lift your voice a bit? Thank you so much for this event, firstly, but something that Jason said really stood out to me when you're talking about what people remember of the time, and I was six years old and I still remember very clearly the murder of Stephen Lawrence, how it was a big thing within our household and it was on TV and being told to watch this, like this is something you can think about this. And 
just the, the strength of his family to have continued to talk about this, to continue to try and keep his story, his life at the forefront. And, and I'm just so grateful, Lisa, thank you so much for talking about Stephen as a person, because I think he is a person, but he's also become a symbol of the Winterstead moment, which I think is important for the dialogue that needed to happen at that time. But it can, it can be so easy to forget that they were people, and I think the moment that was for us as Stephen Lawrence, the murder, was definitely going to be for my nieces with the, the murder of George Floyd. It's going to be a watershed moment for talking about race. Um, and just thinking about these are uh, tragedies, but also times for us to continue these conversations and to build on these conversations of race and seeing what his mother has done, the work that you're doing now to continue these dialogues when sometimes we're told to keep quiet or stop talking about it, or it happened a long time ago, or we've moved on from there. Is that like, well, no, these are important things that we continue talking about. And just that reminder to keep on building on these tragedies um, and use them in a way that isn't grotesque to be able to continue to really push things forward. Um, so yeah, just thank you for that, and thank you for that reminder. Hi, um, I wanted to firstly say that I've been following um, a lot of you for um, a few years now, and I'm really glad that you do. So you're already such like a big inspiration to myself, and I'm a PhD researcher over in Africa. Um, and I'm part of a centre of doctoral training that focuses on unequal African citizenship in higher education. And there's six of us, and we're all um, activists, a lot of us race equity activists. And you know, we talk a lot about um, having energy when you're like a young activist and being able to do this, that, and the other. But I also feel that myself and my colleagues are at that beginning stage where we're almost deciding how long can we you know, keep this going at the, the pace that we have it. For me, it's only been a few years. It's not been very long at all, but it's already quite exhausting. So it's almost trying to ask for advice because we don't have mentors very often, especially you know, people as impressive as everyone that's here. Um, so it's almost, if you have any advice on how to sort of keep that going for, for so long, I, 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 I'm looking for the advice myself. <laughs> Somebody could help me. Can I say something about that? Yeah. I don't want to stop. I just think that's such an important really question. Is, yeah. And it, somehow it feels like almost the key question because mm -hmm. the key issue is not will we one day be in a room and suddenly find the, the silver bullet at last I, on that Thursday in Leicester. Last, mm -hmm. we found the silver bullet. We've all been looking for it. How are we going to beat race? And now I've got it. But the question is, how do we sustain each other so that we are we all keep going? And even if I need to fall over for a bit, it keeps going. Yeah. That, that's partly what collective action is, isn't it? Um, and I don't have an easy answer, but I think those conversations that are starting to be had in activist circles, some of them I feel I'm a bit old and think, oh, no, not, about, not the care conversation again. Please stop. <laughs> please, no, don't touch me. I don't need a shoulder. Please, please. But that's a generational difference. But I think there is something about at least saying to each other that it's a marathon, that um, it's unlikely that any one thing you do will be the thing, which doesn't mean that the, everything you do isn't important. So that something about the pacing and the self-recognition is important. Frankly, I'd never had self-recognition. I just carried on till I burnt out, 
fell over, when I got a bit better, started up again. And I was saying to someone the other day that it was only when I had children I stopped doing that, only because these tiny people needed me to be functioning. But, so I can't say that I've learned that, but I think there is even something, a recognition in that, that, that the horror is always there, isn't it? So that, and we were talking even before the thing that about, we are still all not sleeping, there's too much to do, oh, how can we do anything? There's something about saying to each other, well, maybe not too much self-care, but a recognition that we are also the resource. We, we are the resource of UK anti-racism. So how can we pace ourselves? What do we need to do so that, okay, not only this weekend, but next year and next decade, I still have something to give. And I think, you know, there's not an easy answer, but it's very important for us to all be having that both in our own heads, because it allows you to think, okay, today I'm too knackered, but it's important that I recognise that because I'll be needed next week. Mm -hmm. and, and to be able to hold each other to do that as well. I think we had one more question here, and then I, I think we'll have yours as the final question. It's a really quick one, because there's been a lot of conversation about change and moving forward and making a difference. But, and, and I do see that in, you know, she was saying about the, the younger ones, to a certain extent, I don't know whether it was everything, but to a certain extent it's there. But the structures that we've had in place seem to have hardened more. So how, you know, where, where, where is the change? How, how can there really be change if, if those, because that's the thing, that's the places that makes, you know, makes a difference, you know, in, in our lives to a certain extent. We can kind of all mingle together and get on with it together, but if those structures are still really enforced in place, which they are, and in, you know, I don't see that breaking down in any way, shape, or form. In, in fact, I think that's the thing that just got worse. I think it's, I think it's a, it's, it is an important issue that you raise. Um, uh, I'm old enough to have been part of the campaign in the 1980s to bring an end to SUS mm -hmm. and the police use of SUS laws, uh, which was criminalizing young black people in droves all over the country, not just in London. And um, we engaged young people a lot in those conversations to talk about their experiences of being stopped and searched and banged up in, in police cars and so on and so forth for no other reason than they look, walking down the street, they saw a brand new BMW looking very nice and they wanted to look inside of the car. That's all, right? Um, and, and, and the, the important thing is, I mean, they were just not me, the, the, the late Mavis Best, who passed on a couple of weeks ago in, in um, Greenwich, was, was another key player in that campaign. The important thing was that we took fully into account the experiences of those people, of those young people, what it is, what sense they made of all of that, what they wanted to see changed, how they saw and interpreted the injustice that was being done. And they themselves got involved in really believing that if we acted collectively, we could bring an end to that stupid vagrancy act of 1824, which the police were using. 
And over a, period, over a period of time, we did exactly that. That's one example. The other example is the gang matrix that the, 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 the Metropolitan Police were using. After Mark Duggan was killed in Tottenham in 2011, um, Bernard Hogan Howe, then Met Commissioner, came out with some Rambo-type talk about he's going to take the war to the gang leaders, etc. And so they were breaking down people's doors at 3 and 4 in the morning and uh, um, fingering young kids who had nothing at all to do with gangs. So they had this gang matrix, hundreds of names on them. They didn't keep it to themselves as police intelligence. They shared it with schools. So that the charity which I run, um, which deals with school exclusions, saw a spike in the number of exclusions after the 2011 uh, uh, uprisings in Tottenham and, and, and elsewhere, because the schools were using that. And if any child appeared on it, you, you could bet your bottom dollar that by the end of the week, they'd have you know, behavior points like confetti heaped upon them. So we had to do something about that too. And with some schools, we, 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 we pretty much built a kind of students' union where the students got together, talked about what was happening, talked about what, what individual teachers or head teachers were doing, especially in those schools where they had resident police. And on that basis, we were able to organize with people like Amnesty International, who did a fantastic report about all of that. And it is that activism that brought an end to this gang matrix thing. We challenged it legally. So the, the point I'm making, I'm making two points about that. One, the importance of listening to young people about their own experiences and listening to the kind of solutions that they, 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 they um, uh, want to adopt. And secondly, the critical importance of people inside of professional spaces having some organic connection to the communities from which they come and the challenges with those, those communities. So if you're a teacher or, or, or you, you run a social services department or whatever, yes, you've got that professional profile and, and activity in that space, but much of what you do is, a, is about communities and, and the way they interact and the dynamics between them. We very rarely share information that we are privy to and knowledge with those communities so that they could empower themselves. And I think that's pretty crucial. Thank you. This, this is the final question, and then we'll go on to the closing from Fatima. I want to address the issue of sustainability, how we keep going. Um, I've been involved in anti racist work since 
I began to see racism and the way it operates, not only with death, how systematic, how, how it digs right into the heart of society. It's not something that can be easily tackled or eliminated, and it's a long-term project. It's no quick fix, and that's unfortunate. I'd like there to be a quick fix, but there isn't one. And it, and it dates back to imperialism, to colonialism, and, and the way racism, the structure of society, particularly in the United States, where critical race theory originated. But it also gave me an insight into the, the ups and downs of the way the struggle operates and the way racism adapts and the way um, it changes and how you can win but then lose. So, for example, the Stephen Lawrence moment, if you like, if I can call it that, which led on to the, the 2010 um, um, Public Sector Equality Duty, Equality Act, it looked like for a period post-McPherson that things were really going to move forward. <laughs> and then suddenly, about four or five years afterwards, the whole thing has collapsed into what we've got now. Mm. And we're in a really, and it's the same with Obama's election. I think there was a huge amount of hope with Obama in the United States. But I think now I can begin to understand that that hope was misplaced because the reaction that came was vicious. And that was Trump, Trumpism, and the way we're still in the United States living with the legacy, ironically, of the Obama victory where I think there was a high degree of naivety in the anti-racist movement about what Obama could achieve. Uh, but I remember the euphoria here when Obama got elected, and there other people, we had yes. public meetings, we celebrated, and there was a huge amount of hope for it to be dashed pretty quickly because racism can react in, in that time. And so it, 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 it's depressing, and critical race theory has been described as a depressing theory, but it also is liberating in the sense it gives you greater, it really gave greater insight into what the struggle really means and how difficult it is and how we need to be sustained, taking time out from the anti-racist struggle to bring up children, for example, seems to me to be great because the battle isn't going to go away before we're taking a break. Um, make them that more refreshed. <laughs> Thank you for that. All of your contributions, actually, I think um, it's been a, a really important conversation that for us is part of the way in which we want to bring this forward in different ways. Um, and so this is helping us to frame about frame how we want to bring it forward. So um, I want to thank all of you in the room for attending. And if we've run over, I apologize. Um, I just wanted to hand over to Fatima, to say a few words before sure. we finish. Yeah. Um, thank you. I guess I'll just sit here and just do, and talk. Um, when I was trying to prepare the closing remarks, I was thinking about, you know, what do I cover and how do I cover it and what do I address and what don't I address? And the first thing I did was, as Jason mentioned, sort of the remembering, how do we remember? And I mean, I was only a few years old um, when, when um, Stephen um, was murdered, so I don't have a specific memory from that moment. And also in the 90s, um, I mean, I was born and raised in Luton, repping Luton here. Um, but um, I, I also grew up in two other countries, two other uh, entirely different countries and education systems. 
So the 90s for me is a bit of a blur, but it's also not because we used to visit regularly at, uh, and come back to the UK to visit my family in Luton. But the most vivid, the, the two of the most vivid memories I still have from the 90s. Um, so I very briefly attended primary school in the UK. And my grandmother used to drop me off and pick me up. And on a Friday, she would treat me by giving me 10 pence and take me to a, one of those corner shops. And I would spend five pence on those 1p blackjacks and five, uh, five on um, the, uh, the fruit salad. Box. Fruit salad, that's what yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So that was like my treat because I was well behaved. My grandmother gave them to me. If I got enough gold stars and the little booklet you had in primary school. So that's my first memory that I have. My second one is the more political one. Well, I remember I was watching, it was either Nickelodeon or Cartoon Network, and, and in the corner there was a box that said breaking news. And I had a, a bunch of my uncles and aunts came and they're like, what is going on? Because that's never the case on, you know, a cartoon channel. And then it turned out it was Princess Diana's death, you know, and that famous picture of the car and the bridge and everything. And that was the, that's the memory I go back to. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's the first political memory I have of the 90s. And the next time my cartoon <laughs> watching got disrupted was when the Twin Towers were attacked. And again, I was watching Cartoon Network and in the corner it said breaking news and it had the Twin Towers on there. So my sort of political memory of the 90s and early 2000s is my cartoon watching being disrupted. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's interesting because obviously as a child, you know, I'm just watching whatever and then suddenly that, that, that little screen. And that was sort of how the, you could say the 90s captured me and captured my consciousness as a child. And, you know, when I look back at events to do with race, very significant moments, you know, when we look at the 90s, I mean, 90s is interesting because obviously my parents, share, you know, share a lot of memories of how, for example, the IRA were, you know, you know, pretty much still bombing parts of London and, and, and the relationship They're with the Irish. London. Or, or, but, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not open the Irish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, and uh, so my parents were sharing how, um, you know, how the Irish were still being treated under the, the Terrorism Act and how that then post 9-11, that Terrorism Act became very much about uh, the Muslim community. And I guess, you know, um, just, just to close up, uh, I, I'm aware that everyone wants to go home, but... Um, you know, and I've been thinking about, so what does this mean? You know, the 90s when we're reflecting, uh, what do we take away? And I thought, you know, what I would love for everyone to take away from today, from this session, and hopefully from our sessions in uh, Manchester coming up soon, as well as Greenwich, um, is that, you know, not only the very symbolic nature and, and the watershed moment, as you, as you mentioned, um, of what... Um, how drastically Britain's sort of relationship with race changed and how there was this sort of, um, you know, there was, a, there, there was this rapidity in, in that moment of trying to figure out what to do, what not to do. And, you know, and, and I think about, and of course, through our work at the centre, you know, when, when, you know, I got to meet um, Baroness Lawrence and I just thought, you know, um, it's incredible how, how sort of the tireless, you know, fight that she's put up against the state uh, to seek that justice and how one of the things she did, and I feel like we should definitely continue to do, is continuously hold up that mirror to the British state um, and remind it that, you know, as much as you are changing and doing your flip-flops and, you know, 
maneuvering of racism, you know, it, but it's still the same. So hold, to, to, to hold that mirror up. And, um, and I guess just to end, um, you know, I would, I want to see, uh, and I know this is where perhaps, as you say, romanticism, nostalgia, I don't know what you want to call it, but I do want to see more of a collaboration, coalition building. I do hope that, you know, um, that we continue to raise all these urgent social and political issues around racism and race making, which is obviously those of us who are researching race and race making uh, attempt to do, but this can very much be done in the community centres, in those law centres, in those supplementary schools, a handful of which I know are still running. But most importantly, I want us to consider how as much as race and race making is rapidly changing around us, and as I mentioned with the representational politics, but for us to also keep up with that. And I guess I'd want, I want us to leave with that little bit of fire in us, that flame that keeps us going, that helps, that makes us reach out to one another to understand, to see the beauty of coming together. And I want to see that through organizing, through mobilizing. So I encourage everyone, if you're not, please go and join your local union, go on all those strikes that are coming up. I would love to see you on the picket line, whether as a, you know, for the, for the drivers, for the train drivers, teachers, and many, many more. But for now, all I want to say is, first of all, thank you to Sherilyn, uh, Monica, Lisa, for all the things you put up uh, with at the center, which uh, a lot of which can't be disclosed, but I know you guys are doing incredible work behind the scenes. So thank you so much to Lisa, Monica, Sherilyn. Um, and just also just letting, having given me the space to grow politically. And that's a thank you to Jason, who actually facilitated a lot of stuff for me at the center. Um, so, you know, uh, do come to our events. Uh, and for now, long live the revolution. May we all join the struggle and join a union and see you on the picket lines. Thank you. Guys. <laughs>